chances are you have a love-hate relationship with Instagram. You scroll through it mindlessly, you get this really shit feeling in the pit of your stomach that tastes like the regret of procrastination. You can't stop though, it's like a weird compulsion. You even close the app and then reopen it immediately out of habit. I mean, I do, I'm talking about me. Um, but I do think these are things many of us do. I bet a lot of people listening to this right now are feeling what I'm feeling. We love Instagram, we hate Instagram. We don't like entertaining the idea of living without Instagram. This episode, obviously, is about social media influences. I've been waiting to do this one. One of the reasons I'm so fascinated by influences is how rapidly the culture changes. There was a time before hashtag spawn meant something. There was no such thing as internet celebrities. Then it became something only a chosen few achieved. Then it exploded. Now people are trying to regulate it. It highlights you for criticism if you misuse your platform. It's evolved so quickly and so dramatically that many of us now respond to influences differently to how we did even just 12 or six months ago. I found an article on The Independent by Oliver Bennett called The Wild West of Influencedom that sums it up quite well. They emerged almost overnight and in 10 years have gone from a small network to a worldwide community. Some sources suggest that there is now a baseline of 1.1 million influences worldwide. Media Kicks estimated the industry was worth more than $1 billion, that's £750 million, in 2017. Influencers are the butt of a lot of jokes. They're very easy to laugh at. They're the ultimate millennial punching bag, making their living on the internet, doing something so easily viewed as trivial. Their content looks great, but watching them create it can be cringeworthy. Unnatural poses, making sure they hold their free gift up just right, 50 selfies, whatever. We're so used to the tropes, many of us are sick of the sight of them. According to research quoted on the drum, 47% of people surveyed in the UK, France and Germany are bored of seeing the same repetitive influencer posts on Instagram. The word they used was fatigued. This is That's a Cult, of course, uh, and no internet community is ever simple or black and white. We're not going to be shitting on influencers from a great height today. We're going to be analysing them quite deeply in an attempt to understand where they've come from, if they're as harmless or harmful as some think, and where they're going. Also, you may or may not be able to tell, but I have a new fancier microphone. I hope you enjoy. Um, I'm just getting used to how to get the best sound out of it and how to set it up. It's extremely sensitive. My old mic, um, I basically had to get all up in its business to get decent sound. This one requires a bit more distance um, and a bit more care. So I'll be re-recording sections about two or three times, I think. This is take three of the intro currently. It's getting better. Anyway, influences. I guess I consider myself a travel influencer now, but I like to think of myself as more on the blogger and I'd like to get more to the industry side. I didn't know people could, you know, make a full name for themselves only on Instagram. And this was, you know, 2014, 2015, when that was only really starting to happen. And so then by 2016, 2017, I'm starting to realize that there are people who have no following on YouTube. They have no blog. They have no other 
you know, social content hubs, no other platforms they really use except for Instagram. And that's their whole world. First, I spoke to travel photographer, YouTuber and blogger Cameron Phillips. His Instagram is gorgeous. So stunning, perfectly shot. On the surface, he looks like the atypical travel influencer. Did I say travel influencer? I fucking did. On the surface, he looks like the atypical travel influencer, but he made a YouTube video a couple of months ago called The Truth About Travel Influencers. In brackets, it's mostly fake. We talked a bit about his experiences and how he defines his place in the industry. I've gone on some really, really exceptional press trips by brands who've done a great job, whether that be tourism boards or even hotel companies. And then I've also gone on a few that have not been organized very well. I did a trip where I went to Sweden and it was incredibly hands-off to the point that I was skeptical they were even going to pay at the end of the day because I was like, do they even know I'm here? It was so hands-off, like you do whatever you want, which was nice in an aspect because, you know, they gave us a sample itinerary and we were able to go around, do whatever we want. I was reimbursed for like a couple hundred dollars per day of experiences for like three days, which was nice. The other extreme is where you're scheduled down to like 30 minute intervals for, you know, a week straight. And there's positive positives and negatives to both sides of these equations. You know, I do enjoy the ones that are highly structured and scheduled because they'll take you to things to give you experiences that you might not find by yourself versus me being a tourist. Sometimes you kind of fall into like things that are more touristy because it's easier and more accessible to find. And, you know, of course, those are two extremes and there's everything in between where it's, you know, you do one activity a day for like three hours and you have a whole bunch of leisure time. And those are nice because a lot of times it can be very overscheduled if a brand is really, really trying to crank out the content. So with all that organization and scheduling in mind, it must irritate you that travel influences are often the butt of jokes and are often mm. criticized and overlooked. You know, this is a, a pretty interesting question because I have so many different emotions about it. My biggest annoyance is that people think it's just one specific thing. It's one type of person taking one type of photo and when in reality, it's just travel journalism. This industry has been going on as long as journalism and press has been a thing. You know, big tourism boards will invite out writers and they'll write stories about it. And so when you open the Sunday Times, you are reading about these destinations and a lot of times it's branded. Tourism organizations will bring the writers in to give them experiences so they can write about it and share with their audience. And I think a lot of people, I mean, including myself at one point, fail to understand that. You can't really separate influencers from advertising. In lots of ways, it's what they do. Advertisers obviously use them because they have an established audience and TV and print advertising is, you know, it's still there, but it's sort of old hat. That doesn't mean people don't respond to it, but advertisers are always going to find new ways to catch people off guard. If we go back to what Cameron said, and imagine that travel influencers or any other kind of influencer was viewed in the same way as journalists or photographers. They'd be ridiculed a lot less, I'm sure. So influencers, they go to a specific place, be it a beach, restaurant, park, whatever. They decide what kind of story they want to tell about that place or their day or their experience, what they want people to feel and think of when they look at the image or read the caption. Then they create it and they spend a long time creating it. You're not looking at take one or two, you're looking at version 35, probably. They edit, tweak, 
change the depth perception, write a caption, be it long or short. And let me tell you, as a professional writer myself, the short and snappy copy is a lot harder to write than a few paragraphs. Length does not equal difficulty. So they post it and their metric for success is much the same as a journalist or a photographer's number of views, number of people engaging with it, how they engage with it. Going off someone who's, you know, very established in the industry and works full-time at it, or at least puts in the full-time effort towards it, there's a whole bunch of different factors that go into it. I mean, the first would be the curation of it, which entails the editing, the photo selection, you know, the color coordination, the outfits, the location scouting, the whole kind of visual representation of what's going on. And that became really popular about two, three, maybe even approaching four years ago now in order to look good on Instagram, you had to have a whole theme and you had to have this kind of whole aesthetic across all your photos. And that became a norm. You had to kind of brand yourself as one package because people would like that. They'd stumble across your, your page and they would see this whole cohesive layout of photos. And I think we're shifting away from it now, but still predominantly it's, you'll find travel influencers, lifestyle influencers, fashion influencers, really spending a lot of time, not only on the photos, but making sure they all look good together. That is one of the biggest things that people, I guess, don't understand is the amount of time, energy, and emotion. And so when you see someone posting a photo, a lot of times people who are not in the industry won't realize that not only were they posting that photo to you know, share the photo and share whatever messaging was in the photo, but to complete their grid and their feed and to add another block into the greater picture that is their whole social profile. I do think, on the other hand, there are a lot of you know travel influences or just people on Instagram, YouTube, social media in general that aren't producing quality content, aren't stepping up to the plate, aren't offering value to tourism boards or to their followers and just going to take bikini photos. I pride myself on trying to tell more of a story and to try and connect with more rich experiences in different, you know, whether it be a different culture, a different country, whether it be through food or locals or anything like that. I'm really interested in having those experiences and sharing it and turning it into media. I feel like in recent times it's got to a place where a lot of people are just like, oh, this is great. This is great. Everything's great. Everything's great. And I, you know, like to dive into the story and I like to get people's takes and like understand what's going on and give like an experience versus, you know, there's other people who wouldn't, couldn't care less, but have a million followers and are getting paid the big, big bucks and flown all over the world to, you know, just take a photo that a hundred other people have already taken on Instagram. With all this in mind, why do we struggle to see the depth behind an Instagram post? I think the relationship between content and promotion is the main issue. By the way, just a quick disclaimer, you are probably going to hear a bit of wind in the background for the next bit and a few other clips in the rest of the show. I live in the north of England, the weather is terrible and I can't really wait for the weather to be good to record because we'd be waiting forever. Um, so apologies for that. And I mean, you're probably listening to this while you walk to the gym or you're on a treadmill or you're cleaning the house so you don't really care you're fine you don't care our relationship with influencers can become quite damaged when we don't trust them as much in the uk reality tv stars often cross over into selling shit on their instagram i'm sure they do in other places too 
every crop of Love Island alumni starts flocking diet products, teeth whitening, cheap fashion, gambling even. Some take a selective approach and seem to choose carefully, make sure it fits with who they are and their brand. Others will literally plug anything. The BBC did a panorama about it recently. Strongly recommend the link will be in the episode sources at thatsocult.com. So you get this uncomfortable mix of them generating content to show us what their life is like and what they're up to on their Insta story, sometimes in, you know, raw personal detail. And then one post later, the assumption is that we're supposed to believe they drink this specific type of tea and that's why they look the way that they do. And the backlash to that can be fierce. There have been a lot of examples in the last few years of Instagrammers and influencers being called out for projecting a false and often quite ridiculous image to sell stuff or expecting free stuff purely because of their follower count. There is a bird in my chimney. Can you hear that? Jesus. A YouTuber was absolutely ripped to shreds by an Irish hotel owner in early 2018 when she asked for free accommodation in exchange for her promoting his hotel and facilities on her Instagram and YouTube channel. It's a fairly routine thing for influencers to ask for, but this hotel owner, who apparently gets a lot of these requests, was just over it and outed her. She got so much shit for it. Then there was the Instagrammer who did an advert for a mouthwash on her account. I saw someone tweet a screenshot of this with her username redacted, making fun of how staged and bizarre her picture looked. It was basically like a, this is how I spend my mornings. I love this mouthwash, etc, etc. She, there was balloons. She was sitting like really unnaturally with a coffee in this like beautifully prepared room. And she had a plate of what looked like pancakes delicately balanced on the bed because it's meant to be a morning shot. And someone very keen eyed spotted they were actually tortilla wraps. And by that point, it's just fucking over for her. I mean, you can't get away with that shit on social media now. You'll be destroyed. And she was. I liked the tweet calling her out and... I did what a lot of other people did and thought, God, can't they just stop with this bollocks? I found her profile quite easily because, well, I think I'm the FBI, basically. She didn't delete it, the usual response. She stood by it and she posted another image with a very long caption talking about how she'd received death threats and how it had been a really horrible experience for her. I unliked the tweet and felt really bad about being part of the pylon, but I was part of the pylon. I contacted both women who were called out quite publicly, asking if they'd be interviewed. Um, Neither of them responded. They may not have even read the emails. I don't know. But if they did read the emails and chose not to respond, I can definitely see why. Why would you want to dredge all that shit up again? We hold influencers to a very high standard. There are some who see it as just pure accountability. If you have a big audience and you leverage them to make money by advertising to them and you have clear influence over them and you know you can join Instagram at 13 years old you should be called out that's the opinion of some some criticize them for having what looks like an easy enviable job so they're a bit gel others think they're overinflated and overpaid some probably think it's the perfect representation of a really frivolous part of our digital culture it depends on the transgression and some are clearly out to gain controversy but most of the time i really fucking feel for people when there's a massive pile on what a lonely experience to be hated for a misstep i mean tortilla wraps it's not that bad is it 
Keeping a close eye on Irish bloggers and influencers was an Instagram account called Bloggers Unveiled. At one point, it had 220,000 followers, which is a, f- a lot, but it deleted all its posts in summer 2018 and now looks completely dormant with 161 followers still hanging around. The account would call out Irish bloggers and influencers who they perceive to be misleading their audience or even just glossing over the truth a bit. Not mentioning you've had hair extensions in and then posting about how long and healthy your hair looks would be enough to get on their Instagram story. Journalist Aideen Fitzmaurice found out for herself when she was targeted in July 2018. Basically, Bloggers Unveiled was the most followed account in Ireland for the last year, I'd say. Um, It was like real life Gossip Girl. Everyone was glued to their phones. You'd go into work. The first thing everybody would talk about was, did you hear what Bloggers Unveiled saw? So they would call people out for maybe like a blogger was um, involved with the Road Safety Authority. And then like two months later, they were taking Snapchats in a moving car when they were driving. Or like, for instance, there was one blogger who um, announced a competition for this really expensive jewellery range. And then the winner was like closely related to her. Deals were pulled because of Bloggers Unveiled. Like there was one blogger who signed this um, contract with Boots that he would give up smoking for January. And um, last year, someone was in the airport, saw him smoking, took a photo. Bloggers Unveiled put it up. That was one of the juicier ones now, I have to say. I kind of did that enjoy that one. <laughs> but uh, the, the deal was pulled, I'm pretty sure. Blogging and social media and influencers is such a new concept that the ASAI wasn't really strict on people, like people were getting away with things. So that's how the account started. But then I think what happened was after a while, everybody was so hungry for this account to post that they would just look for stories that might not have existed. But she was calling people, you know, horrible names and liars and, oh, look at her, the state of her kind of thing. So it, it did get nasty. One girl in particular was getting a terrible time. I'm a journalist and um, I have a weekly series called Tried and Tested. So it's like a beauty series. A hair salon got on to me and said, we'll do a sponsored piece with you for Tried and Tested. You don't have to say anything you don't want to, but we will pay you for your service to cover it on your website. That's exactly what happened. I went down, got my hair done, wrote the review. And obviously in that kind of situation especially because it was sponsored the hairdresser took a really nice photo of my hair the picture went up with the review bloggers unveiled screenshot it and said did she forget to mention the part where she got extensions in actual fact I did not have extensions like if I did I would have said it and I would have said their extensions are great like my hair looks you know real it looks natural whatever she called me out literally I woke up that morning and my editor had texted me and she was like I'm just warning you bloggers unveiled has called you out people got so invested in this account anything she said was considered gospel so I was getting these messages left right and center from people I didn't even know telling me I was a liar I was a disgrace my hair looked shit like (laughs) everything you can imagine it was crazy at first, I was kind of laughing it off and I was like, ha ha ha, this is so funny. But then after like a few hours, I was getting messages from people I knew and they were like, I don't know if you've seen this, but I'm really worried about you. 
because I work in media, I have to have a thick skin. You know, you get stuff all the time, you're used to it. So I didn't really mind, but it was when it came to the fact that I was like, oh, wait a minute, like I'm actually being criticized for, you know, my reputation as a journalist here, which is a really big deal when you're 23 and you're starting out in the media and Ireland is a really small pool of fish. This is what was happening for months after. I would go to an event and everyone would be like, oh, you're here. Oh, you're that girl from Bloggers Unveiled. Like literally that was my trademark. A woman was named as the account's creator, apparently falsely, but also there are quite a few people who claim it really was her and have receipts. And she started receiving death threats. And I'm not just talking about DMs, which are still horrendous, but she got a death threat sent to her house. The police got involved then because turns out threatening to kill someone's a crime. The creator shut the account down soon after with this message. Things have taken a nasty, toxic, vindictive and unhealthy turn. This page is not something I want to be involved in anymore. I'm removing myself from all of this. The baying for blood makes me sick. What a shame it has come to this. Blah, blah, blah. Thanks once again and take care. I mean, hon, the baying for blood is kind of your responsibility, whoever you are. Bloggers Unveiled is fairly unique in how prolific it was, um, but there are also quite a few forums and news sites out there designed purely to expose, criticise and share gossip about bloggers and influencers. Some people have created an entire YouTube presence around it. Most of it's just petty bullshit. For example, I found this in a forum said about a fitness blogger. My highlight of the day was when she posted the eggs with cheese and avocado and called it low calorie. That is not a low calorie breakfast. It's a good example of a keto breakfast. She doesn't know shit from Shinola. Big difference. (laughs) I'm now obsessed with the phrase shit from Shinola. Come across a bit full of yourself. Give out some advice that a few people disagree with. Wear a slightly cakey foundation. You're a prime candidate to be criticised or speculated about by anonymous gossip forum members. There's speculation about eating disorders and claims friendships are fake and shallow. Oh, and if you're public about being a parent, you're doing everything wrong. Even if you're whiter than white, you might even be accused of being too boring. I mean, it's not all bad. There are some boys for heaping praise on people, but they get far less engagement. The founder of one of these sites spoke anonymously to a journalist called, um, oh, I'm going to say this wrong, Chavi Lieber. Chavi Lieber. Chavi means something quite specific in the UK, so. The site founder was given the pseudonym A. People hate read blogs for the same reason they watch train wreck reality shows, she says. It's entertaining to see the mess and the what the hell of it all. It's an escape. Maybe not what some people would consider a healthy escape, but it is what it is. To pretend you're above snarking is the most hypocritical thing you can do. Maybe you aren't snarking about blogs, but everyone shit talks something or someone somewhere at some point. On some of these sites, there's a section for podcasters. I looked, obviously, because I have no impulse control when it comes to things like this. Nothing. But there was nothing even in the annoying voices boards. Incredible. A is right, of course. If you're not an influencer and just a spectator, reading these posts is weirdly addictive. It's very rabbit holy. I found myself reading shit about beauty bloggers and family bloggers I've never even heard of. 
There's something about the anonymity of it and the no holds barred criticism that's extremely captivating. You generally can't talk shit about people on the internet if your name is right next to it without getting some kind of backlash. This is absolutely free of that. No consequences, just an avatar and a username with no real link back to you. People can do and say some pretty terrible things under those circumstances. From full-on death threats to your home address to some catty bitching, this is quite dark stuff. How did sponsored posts and hashtags turn into this? I think up until the point where that account was created, there was a lot of people lying because there was no one to tell them otherwise. There was no one to stop them. And a lot of them, I think, didn't even know the regulations about hashtag ad, hashtag spawn. And they kind of saw that as a negative thing on their post because it takes down your interactions hugely. But after the account came about, everyone is conscious of it now. Like even I was gifted something today, but I signed a contract for it. So I was like, well, that's hashtag ad. I went to an event once with pretty um, high up people in the media kind of. And we were all just standing around having the chats. And one of the girls who would be like a very big famous businesswoman said I'm honestly afraid to leave my house I am afraid to say anything to anyone I'm afraid of who I speak to I'm afraid of how I dress because you just don't know it could be you tomorrow one of the things I find so fascinating about social media in particular is that we all have quite a uniquely different experience of it depending on who we follow someone who follows a lot of thin white influencers from a particular part of the world will have a very different response to the platform compared to someone who follows lots of animal accounts or cooking accounts or diverse people with diverse lives. The body positivity movement is really thriving on social media, particularly a platform as visual as Instagram. I wanted to find out about more positive influences on social media. So I talked to Michelle Elman. She created an Instagram called Scars Not Scared and went viral a few years ago when she showed people with scars like her can and should feel happy and comfortable wearing a bikini. The best way to learn a lesson is through telling a story and obviously the only stories I have are my own. Even if I wasn't posting about body positivity and even if I was posting about fashion, I think I would talk about I do it from the point of view of I used to be really insecure about wearing skirts because I always thought it made me look bigger than I am and now I love wearing skirts. So I always talk about my point of view and then bring in everyone else and say, well, like, this is why we shouldn't be insecure about... Well, my last post was insecure about sweating, so this is why we shouldn't be insecure about sweating, but don't worry, I've been there too. What started happening with Instagram was uh, for the first few years, it was very much just like users on it and they didn't really see the business aspect of it people didn't realize they were being sold to and then in came body positivity being like not only are you being sold to people are literally taking advantage of your insecurities and if you've lived in a world where you believe that weight loss is the obstacle between you and every single goal you've ever wanted to achieve it's quite a shock to the system to realize that you've wasted all your time trying to achieve this goal that actually didn't prevent your other goals at all. So I think it's almost like the fear that comes in and instead of embracing the fear, trying to process it, understand it, what happens is they push it away and instead go on the attack. It was in January and it was two o'clock in the morning and I had seen the same body shaming meme five times and I was like, does no one see like how problematic this meme is and how unconsciously this is in our 
humor and in our culture every single day and it, it i believe it goes into your unconscious if you see it that much I think Michelle's absolutely spot on there. We absorb all of this, often unconsciously, and we might not even be mentally equipped to figure out how it affects us. We might not notice. I recently started gradually unfollowing all the reality TV people I've picked up over the last few years. Um, every Cycle of Love Island, a few Geordie Shore people from when I used to watch that. Started researching this topic and became over the last few months quite starkly aware that some of this content was just adding absolutely nothing to my life. I don't feel the need to get rid of the whole platform, I don't think it's inherently evil or designed to be, but my own choices of who I follow were making it a less fun place to be. So when I look through my Instagram feed now, we have... Oh, okay, see so there's a reality TV person I've missed, unfollow. Stacey Dooley, someone I know, someone I know, my hairdresser, oh, some ramen, that looks pretty good, cartoonist, drag queen, model, but also activist, so she can stay, cat, no context, Louis Theroux, feminist, journalist, more cats, alpacas, actor. I feel like this content gives me something. I like hearing about these people's lives. I like seeing it in action. I like seeing the cats that they own. It, it's it's like a open-minded experience. And, you know, I am not your mum. I'm nobody's mum, uh, thankfully. Would not be fit. But I think we're at the point now with Instagram, with influencers, where we have to look at who we follow, look at how we feel when we look at their content. And we've got to start making the decision, are we going to keep following this and feeling shit or feeling a, you know, a certain type of way and not understanding it, but not liking it? Or are we going to take charge? Because influences are fueled by their follow account. And when those followers drop, things change. This kind of change in attitude towards influences might has something to do with with just how saturated not only social media is with us, but how saturated we are by social media. This is Dr. Emily van der Nagel, a lecturer in communications and media studies at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. She teaches a course on youth media and specialises in studying social media. There are more people using these platforms and more and more platforms all the time. And now that, you know, Facebook's, what is it, 12 years old now? it's really become something that is part of the fabric of everyday life. For a lot of people, we're becoming a lot more critical anyway of the sort of messages we get out of places like Instagram because we we understand Instagram now. It's It's been around for long enough that there is an Instagram genre, the brunch shot, the latte, the cocktail, the pastels, these kinds of patterns that we see over and over on Instagram. When we're familiar with them, we start to understand what the norm is on Instagram and what's not. And there's a lot more play with that, I think, for influencers. As a person who studies social media, and, and now I have a title of lecturer in social media, obviously I'm faced all the time with this idea that that is a very frivolous thing to study. 
media criticism or, you know, like developing a critical lens from which to view the media is something that's really important. I can really try to make a strong argument that we need these critical skills more than ever in this kind of era of fake news and image manipulation and this this kind of idea, even though it might not be fully realised yet, of the everyone that has a platform. One of the topics I couldn't wait to bring up with Emily was Fire Festival. I knew she would have some thoughts. In a wonderful stroke of perfect timing, Netflix uploaded its Fire Festival documentary while I was researching this episode. If you haven't seen it, you need to. It's an extremely wild ride. The people behind a tech startup sold really expensive tickets to a festival in the Bahamas that they promoted with a video featuring Bella Hadid, Hayley Baldwin, oh, the girlfriend from Gone Girl, huge models with massive followings online. They hadn't planned any of the logistics of the festival yet. They had no clue what they were doing and were way out of their depth, but they kept going regardless. When all the ticket holders turned up expecting the party of their lives, they got entirely the opposite. It is interesting that you mentioned Fire Festival. Okay, I think there are two very important things that have come out of Fire Festival. And will I include this in my lecture on influencers? Yes. When I think of, of the way Fire Festival was marketed and what it tells us about social media, we know that that story started with influencers. We know, for example, that the way that Fire Festival was introduced to the people en masse was these influencers who they deliberately courted to suggest they were in the process of preparing this amazing new music festival, changing their Instagram picture to a big orange square, and they would hashtag it with Fire Festival coming soon. Join me at Fire Festival. It was a very, you know, in and of itself, separate to the festival, which was obviously a disaster. The Orange Square campaign was was very noticeable and it got a lot of people interested in what Fire Festival was all about. It was also really immediately linked to, again, this kind of idea of here is the Instagram genre writ large beautiful bikini models, skinny bikini models on an island, having fun, very fashionable, very glamorous. And these were the promotional images used to suggest that Fire Festival was going to be a bit like this, but a great big party that you too could be included in. It's a very seductive vision, but I also think that it deliberately draws on these really well-known images, the beach, the sun, the bikini model. And then again, you know, later, when it turned out that actually the people who were running Fire Festival were doing a terrible job and that the people who were attending were going to get a really awful experience. Again, it was social media that most people found out about it. There's that now infamous post about the horrible looking cheese sandwich and somebody's circulating this on social media saying, we were promised all of this we got this horrible cheese sandwich. Obviously, there's an expectation and reality that's going on that are really disconnected, but there's also that kind of initial image versus that image of reality. A lot of people are now asking the question, what's the future of social media influencers? Their advertising methods are under more and more scrutiny. We're quite comfortable mocking them and calling them out. It's an increasingly hostile world. How are they going to adapt? After researching it for a while, I honestly don't know what the future of influencers is. Emily has some interesting thoughts on it, which we'll get to later. 
It's difficult to know how influencer culture will change, but we can have some good guesses as to why it's going to change. One thing we can't ignore is the fact that pressure on influencers to be more responsible and authentic, but also post more and build their audience is getting heavier and heavier. Burnout and exhaustion is really common. Even Michelle, who's cultivated a very positive Instagram presence, has felt it. The intimidation point was at about 40,000. I'm now at 120 something thousand. It was that thing of trying to adjust from being an Instagram user to being an influencer. Because in my head, there was something around 40,000, which was like, wait, hold on, that's a lot of people. There was a lot of backlash against body positivity at that point, And it felt like anything I was saying was getting critiqued nonstop. And whilst I'm really there for criticism, in the extent it was coming at me, the maliciousness, this platform that I really enjoyed had become somewhat negative and I didn't know how to manage it yet. I didn't know what to do about it. I find I'm not happy on Instagram if I put too much focus on my following. I couldn't tell you how many followers I have on my Scott Not Scared account. When I focus on the following it's actually really hard to be creative. Like, I don't think consciously about the fact that I'm posting to 120,000 people every time I post. It's a great following. I really don't need any more to do what I want to do or to um, spread the message. Any Instagrammer who's actually seen the change over the last four years knows it's next to impossible to grow on Instagram and you're lucky if you're not follow- losing followers every day. The pressure of putting so much content out is a lot. For example, if I went viral in 2015, which I did do, I gained 10,000 followers in the space of a week. If I went viral now and was in every single newspaper outlet, I would maybe gain a thousand followers. In 2015, if I was in the newspaper, for example, I would gain probably 5,000 followers. I was in a Telegraph two, two weeks ago, literally no different to any other day. People aren't looking for more people to follow. They have almost like hit their limit of people they want to follow. And unless you're really doing something different and unless you're really challenging it, people don't see a reason to follow because they've got the people they've almost attached to. They've got the people that they come on the platform to see every day. And you have to work really hard to squeeze into the 200 that they follow or the 500 that they follow. Travel influencer Cameron is also not 100% comfortable with one of the platforms that he uses. Instagram has always been kind of a weird spot for me. I'm trying to change my like mental relationship with it and my mindset about it. So in recent times, I have given up a little bit of the like striving for perfection. But without a doubt, I find myself drifting back there so easily. You know, you when you just go for a scroll on Instagram and you find, you know, 10 random bloggers who have big followings and look great and they're working and it's like, well, you know, how can I get there? Which then I feel like I'm compromising my own authenticity. I listen to a lot of podcasts about like business, personal like branding, social media. The common narrative among all these people, you know, followers are great and followers give you the, you know, the brand connections and whatever. But there is definitely a point where it's, it's not all about just the number, like, you know, having 100K next to your name. It's about the actual connection you have with these people and the relationships. Because having 100 people that'll buy a product versus 100,000 people who don't really care is going to make all the difference. And that's just 100 versus 100,000. You know, think of if you actually had, you know, 20,000 people who cared about every single photo and really cared about what you had to say. 
And people get lost, including myself in the past and still now, and I'm, I'm working on it, but people get lost in that vanity number of, I want to have a 1 million next to my name, or I want to have a hundred thousand next to my name and fail to see the importance of making sure that people who follow you actually care and that you're giving them value. So then when it comes time to monetize yourself, they'll take action, they'll support you, and they'll give you that engagement that the brands really want at the end of the day. There's one fairly uncomfortable truth we haven't talked about yet. Those Instagram tropes that Emily was talking about, that language of Instagram imagery we all understand, we obviously do it too. It's not unique to influencers, it's just that they do it in front of more people. We mimic influencers on our own profiles, whether we have 50 followers or 5,000. We try to get that perfect beach shot or frame our latte just right, but we're not being paid for it. And that seems to be where the difference is. At what point does one become an influencer? When you get your first free product, first hate comment, first message to your all inquiries email address. Here's Emily again, talking about the future of social media influencers. Our understanding of influencers, as well as the practice itself, is expanding all the time. So so when I was, was researching influencers to talk about in my lecture, I came across this, this site that is specifically geared towards those really micro sorts of influencers, basically recruits people who have any number of followers and they don't pay them money, but they send them free products in exchange for a product review on Instagram. It seems to be kind of mostly um, maybe mums, for example, who are getting free products like washing powder or muesli bars or nappies. They'll take a picture of them and write what they think about them and then, and then post them to social media, you know, hashtagging all the, all the appropriate people. And I really feel like that part of the influencer dynamic is not looked at very much. These mums who are who are reviewing washing powder on Instagram, they are poles apart from the kind of celebrity bikini babe kind of influencers that we saw in the Firefest um, kind of promotional videos. But they're doing a really similar thing. I read a piece by Alice Marwick that really changed my mind about what I, you know, my, my own perception of influencers. In this this piece, she suggests that micro celebrity might be a niche practice, but its dynamics are increasingly part of everyday life. So she's kind of almost getting to the argument that we're all influencers, because whether we're trying to sell something or not we are still kind of tapping into those key parts of, of the whole social media experience of attention and authenticity. And we all try to present our best self and live our best life. Like Emily, I'm very into breaking social media down into tiny components and picking them all up and asking questions about them. Anyone who thinks social media is inconsequential has clearly never spent enough time on it. Social media has created a major shift in how we communicate with each other. That's massive and we'd be idiots to ignore it. As you know, I'm banging to the internet. It's complex, but ultimately I think we're better off with it than without it, as long as we can understand it. Influences, though, are one of the parts I'm a bit iffy about. Before I started this episode, I was fairly sure I understood them. 
I didn't. If we critique influencers, we also have to take quite a critical look at our own behaviour on social media too. We are all performative, displaying what's good in our lives for a digital audience. There are people who use social media very consciously and they're responsible to their audience. But even they're not totally free from the downsides. How easy it is to eavesdrop on a false image of someone's life, feel inadequate. We've heard all of this before, they're thankfully starting to teach it in schools. I thought at the very start of the research that influence would be the most cultish aspect. These people have influence over us that's really significant. They're changing the way we think, changing what we buy. It sounds really manipulative when you think about it like that, and some people do think about it like that. There's a lot of validity in it. If you scroll through your timeline thinking every promotional post is there for the good of your health, well, you're gonna have a bad time. What we can see though is there's no one correct way to be an influencer. People speak to their followings in entirely unique personal ways. Some abuse them, but many don't. And though a critical eye can turn into a critical mouth very, very easily, we're becoming so much savvier. That's surely a good thing. We're unfollowing, we're saying no, we're not flocking to someone's page in the same numbers anymore. Influencers have to work harder which can lead to some desperate dodgy tactics, but they don't last. It's also paving the way for content creators who are just doing a fucking good job and enjoy what they post and bring a new enthusiasm to all these platforms that we use every day. Despite the odd transgression, I think influencers have generally become too easy a target. I takedowns don't really work. I think we think they do, but they encourage death threats and a feeble apology more than anything. If someone really does abuse their platform or starts encouraging their 14 year old followers to start betting on horses and taking weight loss tablets and shit like that, we already have the tools to shut them down. After all, they feed off views and likes and follows. The best way to end their relevancy is silence. We're the ones with the power and we need to remember that. So yeah, if you feel discomfort with social media, but you still wanna use it, go and do a cull. It's quite empowering. Unfollow some people who've got a bit repetitive and you're not interested in anymore. And if you still don't feel better, well, you give it a go. Personally, I'm much happier now that my Instagram feed is my IRL friends, Nigella Lawson, and some alpacas. Because Instagram doesn't have to be a place where you're advertised to. It's a place for photography and words. And with that combination, you can do anything. That's a Cult is written and edited by me, Helen McCarthy. I'm on Twitter at Helen L. McCarthy. The music is composed by Antti Luodi. You can find his information in the episode description. Thanks to my interviewees, Aideen Fitzmaurice, Cameron Phillips, Michelle Elman, and Emily van der Nagel. All their details and respective Instagrams, follow them, don't follow them, it's your choice, are in the episode description. If you liked this episode or have any other thoughts, comments, please tell me if they're respectful by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or tweeting me or whatever. Um, the podcast is on Spotify now, by the way, so you can listen on there if that's your preferred platform. 
I also want to hear your internet cult suggestions. Just email thatsacult at gmail.com. You know, make it niche, primarily internet based and weird as shit and I'll probably be into it. If there's a subreddit, even better. So yeah, thanks for listening.